Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2023, we're running our annual Radiothon, where we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy the podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. Join the, the new international bookshop in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. It's, it's nice and nippy out there for this uh, Saturday morning uh, Solidarity Breakfast. Got to remember that next week is Radiothon. And if you want, you can actually ring in. We'd love to hear you, not only to donate, but we'd love to hear from the listeners. So just to uh, get your pen out, 94198377 in preparation and uh, tone your voice up so that we uh, get the best sound from you. And you can ring in next week uh, between 7.30 and 9, donate, and also have a chat with us all. We'd love that. We'd really, really like to hear from our listeners. Uh, today on uh, Solidarity Breakfast, we're going to uh, visit Mabo Day. There, uh, People forget how important Mabo Day is, and so I went down on June the 3rd. That was uh, Sunday, last Sunday, uh, uh Dr. Joe Toscano and a group of people every year mark Mabo Day at the Federation Square. And uh, I, I kind of think that perhaps Mabo Day is one of those days that should be considered for our National Day. But anyway, I had a chat with Joe on that day and uh, so I, we're going to hear the chat and we're going to hear some of the um, speech that he made on that day so that we can remember why Mabo Day is such an important day. We're going to move on to a chat with uh, John Pabon. He's written a book called The Great Greenwashing, How Brands, Governments and Influencers Are Lying to You. <laughs> uh, it's published by Melbourne Books and uh, he, it's um, being published uh, around now and he's doing a bit of a tour and we're going to have a yarn with him about uh, some of the things that he's got to say. He's very experienced in the sustainability area and so uh, he's got a, quite a lot of interesting things to say. Uh, this is the week that was and then we're going to follow with uh, a chat I had with Dale Beasley. He's from SA unions um, and uh, it's about uh, the anti-protest laws that have been passed in South Australia. Now they've got a Labor government uh, and uh, interestingly enough as we uh, uh, looked into the story, um, the royal we, I looked into the story, of course they're um, uh, Melanarchus, uh, the uh, Premier who has been um, doing all these sort of dubious things, like you may be not, may be aware or not aware 
that uh, <laughs> the Victorian branch of the CFMEU Construction General Division um, have gone over to South Australia and are supporting that branch and uh, as it uh, gets back on its feet. And uh, one of the things they did was uh, uh, put up, uh, uh, hired, uh, paid money to have on the tram that goes along Glenelg line, um, CFMEU uh, advertising. Uh, and it caused a huge scene uh, with the uh, Premier stepping in, saying that it should it was outrageous that the union should be publicising itself on this tram and uh, was pushing for it to be taken down, even though it was a straightforward commercial transaction. Uh, and it, it's a very strange thing, isn't it? Because it's a Labor government... Uh, uh, lots of union support to get them actually into power. But it turns out, of course, that uh, Melanarchus, he was the uh, uh, state secretary for the SDA, uh, which uh, sort of says it all in a funny kind of way. But anyway, I had a chat with Dale Beasley, who is the secretary of the SA Unions, which is uh, basically the peak body. It's like Trades Hall, Victoria Trades Hall. Um, and uh, he he was uh, very vocal at the various uh, rallies that were called against the protest protest laws. Um, these laws are more draconian than I- any of the others in the other states, which is quite fascinating. Um, you know, things like fifty thousand dollar fines for um, getting in the way of uh, you know normal discourse, you know <laughs> that sort of thing. Anyway. We'll talk to Dale about what happened in South Australia and what is actually still happening. Um, But before we do, a couple of things. As I said, it is uh, Radiothon time and there's a couple of messages from Lasnet, uh, our wonderful co-presenters, Lasnet, Solidarity, that's uh, Latin American Solidarity Network. Today they've got... uh, at 11am at Catalyst, that's 146 Sydney Road, Coburg, uh, a garage sale, which will be a fundraiser. Um, nice idea, garage garage sale, lots of things. And if you haven't been to the Catalyst Centre in at 146 Sydney Road, Coburg, it is quite good fun. Got to remember, if you're not a person from that side of town, that Sydney Road's uh, numbering system changes as it goes from one suburb to another. So make sure you don't get off at the wrong 146, which is actually near Barclay Square. I'm talking from experience. Don't. It's not the one at Barclay Square, keep going until you get to Coburg. And it's 11am it starts and it's a, a garage sale. If you want more information, go to Facebook at LASNET, lowercase, L-A-S-N-E-T. And on Tuesday, uh, at the same place, that's Catalyst, 146 Sydney Road, Coburg, uh, on June the 13th, which is... Uh, Tuesday, 7pm at the same place, there's going to be a documentary, Chile, 50 years. So uh, important stuff uh, if that's your interest and also it'll be a Radiothon fundraiser because that's what's happening in June at 3CR. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical community-owned media during our Radiothon. 
We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Fierce, independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep radical voices and issues on the airwaves. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Call the station on 03 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, during business hours. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. Did you get that? (laughs) If you're a fond Solidarity Breakfast listener, we'd love you to ring in on Saturday next week. Uh, We'd love to hear your dulcet tones. Tell us all about why you listen to 3CR, why it's important and why Saturday or your podcast, A Solidarity Breakfast, really uh, bucks you up. Uh, We're going to move on to the uh, Mabo Day uh, event that was held at... Uh, Federation Square, it's been uh, going on for quite a while, uh, a couple of years now, with uh, Joe Toscano goes down there and a group of people actually ruminate on uh, the importance of uh, Mabo Day. Uh, let's hear what Joe had to say. So what, what happened in 2002? It was the 10th anniversary of the Mabo decision and all the major protagonists came down here, Father Rice, Grandfather Passy. They all came down here. Uh, Eddie Marbo's widow. Uh, there was Torres Strait Islander dancers. It was all courtesy of the Melbourne City Hall. Uh, and there was a huge uh, people celebrating that 10th anniversary because what people forget is it was a Melbourne law firm which provided the pro bono work that won the, that won the High Court case. It was a Melbourne law firm. It wasn't a Queensland law firm, it was a Melbourne law firm. Yeah, uh, people doing something that actually changes things. That's right, that's right. And so that was it. But unfortunately, as we're 4,000 kilometres from the Torres Strait, we're in the Torres Strait, the Torres Strait Authority has declared today a public holiday. It's always been a public holiday uh, to celebrate Marvo Day. Uh, You'll find that here in Victoria, 4,000 kilometres away, most people don't even know what the Torres Strait Islander flag is and what that funny flag is that's actually flying one of Australia's uh, recognised official flags. It's interesting that um, something as significant as the uh, Mabo decision is really significant to the um, denting the uh, uh, colonial state in Australia. It's like the Red Sea. They clo- the water just closes over as if it never happened. The dilemma, the, is, yeah, well, the dilemma is that it's what it actually challenges land ownership. And that's what all radical struggles, reformist struggles, revolutionary struggles are based on two principles, land and liberty. And it challenged land ownership for the first time in a legal framework, not through direct action, but legally where the, uh, the idea that this country wasn't inhabited uh, because there were no buildings... Uh, terra nullius was actually overthrown by the courts but it was a very close decision it was four to three and the fact is that then they had to pass bucket loads of legislation to try to extinguish native title now a lot of aboriginal groups make the mistake not a lot a few make the mistake of thinking that the dilemma was the Mabo decision it's not the Mabo decision the dilemma is what happened after that to actually extinguish the Mabo decision 
Yeah, the soul of greed. Um, the thing that's most important, uh, which is really fa fantastic, is that the reason for why it was such a uh, a showstopper for the um, powers that be is that they themselves, the English law itself, is based on the concept of private ownership of land. That's right, and what the Marbo High Court, what uh, Eddie Marbo and uh, Passy and Rice demonstrated in their 10-year odyssey through the courts is that Torres Strait Islanders had familial rights to land. It wasn't a common ownership, but familial rights. They could actually point out, and the High Court went to the Torres Strait, went to Mur, they could out point out where the boundaries were, right into the sea, because they had uh, uh, rocks which marked the boundaries, the gardens and access and that's what happened is when they were confronted by the fact that that it was about private ownership uh, it all collapsed but it went on for 204 years just yeah yeah Th this mirror to the uh, colonial state the mirror to the yes. English um, ruling class yeah yeah well yeah it was and uh, that's its strength the fact is that it shook the foundations uh, regarding what the colonisation process was based on. It highlighted that it was based on pure and simple theft without compensation. The weakness in the Mabo decision is you had to, sh you had to show a continuing association uh, or with the land and the dilemma is that the further south you go, the greater was the genocide and the fewer the survivors and the ability of people to actually uh, uh, survive and demonstrate, like the Fail Yorta Yorta case here in Victoria, demonstrated how high the bar was set by legislation. For example, legislation was passed which said although people got native title, the mining companies, if they found minerals on that land, the original owners did not have the right to veto, they only had the right to negotiate for some type of uh, royalty minuscule in many many regards and people like uh, Stokes have been very successful in turning different clans against each other and uh, not actually really compensating people for what's happening on their land today. So you don't blame the decision, the decision opened up a, it opened up a mechanism by which the what the Whitlam Labor government did in 72-73 by introducing land rights and territory in the ACT, it opened up, it gave that a legal basis. What's fa fascinating to me is the um, level of uh, fight that it takes to get fairness made clear and how easy it is for money to undermine the principles of justice. It's very simple for money, money and power uh, to overlap. But again, it's all based on the concept of access to land, whether you lease it, whether you rent it, whether you own it. And that's what that's what colonisation is about. It's about removing the original owners, putting uh, down a structure, not providing compensation. And I understand the uh, you know there there is progress currently in terms of the position. I personally take my lead from the. Uluru statement from the heart where delegates, not representatives, but delegates from most of the groups in Australia congregated in Uluru, the, the dead heart of our country, and uh, asked for three things. They asked for 
voice in the constitution because they remember what happened to ATSIC when the Howard government got into power. They asked for uh, truth telling and they asked for a treaty. So obviously in which, uh, which comes first obviously is a matter for debate. But the fact is in a referendum it's the Australian people which give the government the go ahead to continue uh, to negotiate with First Nations people. Uh, treaties are about uh, relationship between First Nations people and the government of the day. It's not about the Australian people. The 1966 referendum was important because it opened up the gateway to land rights legislation. The Mabo decision opened up the gate rights to gateway to native title and uh, I reckon a, vo a successful voice referendum, irrespective of how powerful it's going to be, gives future governments permission to move forwards in terms of negotiating a treaty or treaties with different First Nations people. Because it's the Australian people that decide, not the government of the day. Yeah, uh, it's interesting, you know, uh, as we move into uh, potential uh, collapse of this civilization because of the environmental uh, destruction, how important Indigenous relational connections to country are. Well, they're, 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 they're central, they're central. Uh, today's Mabo Day, 3rd of June. It's a public holiday in the Torres Strait to acknowledge the importance of that day when the High Court of Australia determined on the 3rd of June 1992, 31 years ago, that this country's First Nations people had rights to land in law because of their continuing association with this land. My name's Joseph Toscano. I'm the uh, husband of the late Ellen Jose. In 2002, here in uh, Melbourne, there was a very large Mabo gathering of some of the primary participants in the court case and the Melbourne City Council gave those people the keys to the city. So what is Mabo? The further you get away from the Torres Strait, the less important it seems to the people, especially people who in authority. This is Reconciliation Week, and what people forget is that Reconciliation Week is bookended by two days. The 27th of May, which is the anniversary of the 1967 referendum. The 26th of May is National Sorry Day, which again in uh, Melbourne was uh, almost totally ignored. And the 3rd of May, the end of Reconciliation Week, is Mabo Day. So what's Mabo Day? Eddie Mabo lived on Mur in the Torres Strait until he was expelled by the local council on Mur for being a, a troublemaker. And he found his way to Townsville University where he worked as a gardener. This wasn't, this wasn't a man who was an academic, but during his lunch hour, he would go into the library and read books there. At that particular point in time in the 70s and 80s, the Bjelke-Peterson government was forcefully removing First Nations peoples from their lands under the point of a gun, burning 
their homes and force them away in order to, for mining ventures to occur. So over a period of time, Eddie Mabo thought that the concept of terra nullius, the legal fiction that this land belonged to no one, was just that, total legal fiction. For 240 years, the Australian state had said in its legal documents that this land, where people had lived for over 60,000 years, belonged to no one. And this is how they justified the colonisation pro process, terra nullius. So this was the basis on which most of the racist legislation which occurred since the beginning of colonisation till 1992 was based on forceful re relocation, removal of children, forced assimilation, people being basically monitored as far as their everyday movements was concerned, the setup of uh, little more than concentration camps like in Palm Island and Sherbrooke and many other places. And, and it was this legal basis was terra nullius. Now, Eddie Marbo, Father Rice and Grandfather Passy, members of the Merck community, initiated a legal challenge through the federal courts to the concepts of terra nullius. And this... Um, this challenge went through the Queensland courts for over a decade and despite legislation through state parliament because of the 1967 referendum which gave the Commonwealth Government the power to legislate in terms of First Nations people to actually trump state legislation that the case eventually found its way to the High Court. Now, Eddie Marbo died five months before the judgment, but Grandfather Rice and Father Passy continued to survive long after the judgment. And on the 3rd of June, 1992, the High Court, in a very, very close decision, four to three, said that terra nullius was legal fiction that First Nations people who could, who could demonstrate a continuing association to the land, and that's an important thing, continuous association to the land, had rights to land in law under European Australian law. So for the first time, first time in Australian history, what we saw is the overturning of the fundamental premise that this country was based on. The legal fiction that the land belonged to no one because they couldn't see cities, the land. So it was, if it belongs to no one, then the, anybody can come and claim it and obviously the squatters claimed it. Now you'd think this was the end of the situation, but it was just the beginning. Those of you who are old enough will remember the consternation and the hysteria 
in the corporate-owned media, conservative sections of the uh, government, uh, the National Party, who claimed that they would bury the Mabo decision in bucket loads of extinguishment. And we saw during the Howard era legislation after legislation being passed through Parliament to dilute the essence of the Mabo judgment. Now obviously there are issues regarding native title in 2023. Most of these issues are not about native title. Most uh, of these issues are actually about the legislation which was passed. For example, if you had native title over your land, which you won through the uh, laborious court process, and some of these cases, like the Wick case, could take years, decades, you couldn't prevent a mining company from actually um, mining resources on your land. The only thing you're allowed to do, because the legislation is negotiate over a period of time fixed for some type of compensation. And we've seen the Gina Reinhardt's and the Kerry Stokes of the world become billionaires through denying people who've got native title rights to compensation for the minerals which have been removed from their land. This is due to legislation. Also legislation has made it very difficult for many people who have no continuous association with the land because the further south you get, and it's quite interesting that how few people uh, even know today's Mabo Day because it's not mentioned, the further south you get, the less continuous association you have with the land because those people as we saw in Tasmania, Victoria and southern New South Wales, were almost from the face of the earth through some of the most brutal uh, mechanisms to ensure that sheep were grown so they could send wool to the satanic mills in uh, England in the 1830s and 1840s. So the other thing the legislation has done since native title is it pits Aboriginal group against Aboriginal group and currently there are a number of federal court cases in place where one group says they are the sole owners, another group says they are and, uh, and there are debates going through even on the land where we stand on today, the Bunurong land, between competing factions in that particular group. So it has caused Issues, but the issue is not native title. The issue isn't Mabo Day. The issue is the legislation which was passed to actually nullify and destroy people's hopes. And that's what people remember. A lot of people continue to think it was the legislation itself. But the legislation itself was groundbreaking because they used the colonizers law to beat them in court. So it's Melbourne. Hi, my name is Lex Wharton and I listen to Tree CR and I hope you do too.
I hope that you could support 3CR in its radiothon because 3CR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles. So please listen to 3CR. Well, I love the Lone Ranger. I love that Dennis Law. Him and George Best. I sure knew how to kick a ball. I wanted to be a cowboy and learn to crack a whip. Stand up in that lonely street to six guns on my hip. Along the mighty Beatles came and everyone went, ah! They could play and sing and everything. And of course that John could draw. Well, that was it for me. I never once looked back at tricks to learn and waves to catch. I had a plan of attack. Are you looking at me? Are you looking at me? Are you looking at me? Are you looking at me, pal? South, where the surf came crashing in, from black and white to colour, from innocence to sin. It was summer in December, blowing heat waves in my mind. People talking funny, some cruel and some were kind. From the crackle of the cane to the frown of a big black snake, from the breakers at Bondi and down to Wallaga Lake. From the sound of a million fly screen doors closing on the past, like that chimney the fires couldn't burn, I was built to last. Are you looking at me? Are you looking at me? Are you looking at me? Are you looking at me, pal? across the ocean I was number one people gave me everything and I didn't need a gun walking down that avenue I never felt so alive people calling out my name and I'd only just arrived there was a tightrope walking bagpiper in the middle of Central Park steam was rising from the ground I wore my cape out after dark I had myself a moment my day out in the sun It's an unfinished story But it's more than just begun And I know more than one thing But not more than two or three And I'll tell you if you'll listen And I'll tell you for free It's no life being a cowboy And eating all them beans Coffee's cold and the herd is gone And all you've got's your dreams you can always put your spurs back on, but save them for Halloween. You're better off heading north or somewhere you've never been.
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, on digital and online, 3CR Radical Radio. <laughs> She's a good one. Uh, you're on 3CR, as she said, uh, with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And we were just listening to the wonderful Colin Hay, Are You Looking At Me? Before that, we were listening to Joe Toscano at the uh, Mabo Day event that was at Federation Square. Very sobering information coming from that event. Uh, but right now, we're going to have a yarn about greenwashing. John Parbon, who's written a book, The Great Greenwashing, How Brands, Governments and Influencers Are Lying to You. G'day, John. How are you? G'day. How are you going? Good. Uh, you, you don't uh, take things by half. What a be- <laughs> Tell us about uh, your background, because, of course, you live in the world of sustainability, don't you? That's exactly right. I've been in the space, gosh, probably about 20 years now. Uh, but basically over that time, I saw a lot of academic discussions going on, which made me want to get out and explore things firsthand. So really out in factories and fields and, and in boardrooms as well, but trying to get a sense of, okay, how do I take all of this quite scientific and uh, fluffy information and translate it in a way that people can understand and actually do stuff with. Well, one of the things about this book and one of the strengths of this book, of course, is the uh, various places that you have actually entered. You started off your uh, career uh, after study at the UN, so that was a very interesting sort of uh, inside look, wasn't it? That's, it was always my career trajectory was going to the UN, doing the UN. And after being there for several years and talking with, with lots of mentors that were there, they said, you know what, you might want a little bit of experience outside the UN as well, which is what I did. And I ended up in, in the private sector, but always working with, with big consultancies and helping them on their more, let's call it altruistic side. So working with public sector clients and then kind of fell into sustainability by accident, I suppose. It was before sustainability was even called that back then. I was living in New York. I had moved to Shanghai, and I had to figure out a way to marry all of that public sector experience in a very commercial city, and sustainability was uh, was the way to go, and the rest is sort of history. <laughs> mm. Yeah, well, you know, we could uh, go down that rabbit hole to uh, talk about your experience of living in Shanghai. What a place to live. Um, you actually do uh, talk... Uh, about a uh, you know uh, in the book you actually use a variety of different examples, and one of them was about the construction site in uh, Shanghai, uh, where it's covered with a wall that uh, talks about uh, basically it's a it's a an art piece to greenwashing really isn't it. The, the <laughs> That's exactly right. I remember that uh, very distinctly. It was a massive, a massive mall that was going in, sort of this small residential complex that would have been one of the biggest buildings in the city. And it's it's a construction site. Construction sites are dirty. The building industry is quite dirty. I think it 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 battles for number one dirtiest industry with agriculture. So it's way up there. But around the entire building site were were these beautiful murals of you know pastoral lands and cows and flowers and it's just it boggles the mind that anybody would see the two things going on and go oh yeah i guess they're they're pretty green but that's really hitting at the heart of greenwashing it's it's these organizations painting a pretty picture hoping you're not going to look behind the scenes um you uh you actually go through the various methods of uh greenwashing like misdirection seeding doubt 
discrediting someone's reputation. And um, I really like the one, kill the chicken to scare the monkey. <laughs> it's my favorite Chinese idiom. They have lots of them, but that is that is the best one. So kill the chicken to scare the monkey is basically use someone as an example. Uh, and there are, there are lots of these. The one I think that comes up in the book at, at length is the case of Steve Donziger, who's an American lawyer that's been fighting for decades against Texaco and Chevron for what they've done in, in South America. And he is that quintessential example. He's the chicken that Chevron is trying to kill or has successfully, figuratively, <laughs> killed. They haven't actually killed him yet uh, to, to scare anybody else away from taking up legal cases against, against this big oil company. Yeah, it's uh, it's absolutely egregious what that what happened there, but it's a a very interesting um, case study because we're talking about Ecuador and we're talking about Texaco having for was it about a decade dumping mm-hmm. dumping huge amounts of oil waste uh, and polluting that country and causing massive uh, um, illnesses, you know, just. You know, generational uh, de- uh, destruction, but because it was sold on to Chevron, Chevron has the temerity to say that uh, there's nothing to see here. Chevron's never been in Ecuador. That's exactly right. So they use those those nice little loopholes that corporations like so much to get out of of any in having to pay back any restitution or do anything about it. And this has been a saga that's gone on now for close to 30 years, where Steve Donziger, the lawyer, this is his first case out of, out of law <laughs> no, school, and it's the man. only case he's ever had. Uh, but because <laughs> of, it, it, I mean, what a, what a case to pick. But because of all of this, and because of a certainly a corrupt legal system as well, uh, he has uh, accomplished nothing. But in, in, in fact, he's become the victim in all of this, where he's been put under house arrest, he's been jailed, uh, all to set an example so no other lawyers go after big corporations. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um it's an obscene story, in fact, but it's a good one that you've put into the story into the book. I'll have to say, uh, and it does uh, point to the fact that people should read the whole book all the way through because there's an awful lot of interesting stuff in your book. Um, but uh, and you are trying uh, to uh, sort of look at the whole area, and uh, you talk about uh, the unsustainable. You divide it up into a whole range of areas, and one of them is the unsustainable industries. So uh, we've got uh, tobacco, oil, and defence. That's right. Because they kill people. (laughs) That's usually rule number one of sustainability is you don't want to kill people. So (laughs) because we like to look at sustainability as as sort of the green part of it, and that gets the lion's share of the PR, but there's so many other things that are under this umbrella term as well, and one of those is primarily human rights, and, you know, the the biggest human right is the right to live. So these companies that are in the unsustainable category are ones that kill their end user or kill people in general, and because of that, they will never be sustainable. You cannot be. It doesn't doesn't compute. So uh, no matter... What they do and what they say, they cannot be sustainable. But as I'm picking through this, I thought, okay, then there's those on the other end of the spectrum that aren't necessarily perfect, but are probably doing better than most. So those are things that are in highly regulated industries like technology, med tech, pharma. Again, not perfect, but better than most. But the majority of companies 
they kind of sit in the middle. So they're doing good things, but they're also not perfect. Uh, they, they greenwash, but sometimes it's not intentional. So these are the ones that I like to focus on because you can do something about that. The unsustainable, you can't do anything. They're, they're sort of a lost cause, I hate to say. Uh, so, so let's focus on the ones where we can have the, the biggest bang for the buck. Which is probably where your, your work sits, doesn't it? Because you actually do say in your book that you actually believe it's the private sector that's going to lead the charge. I mean, that's right. Yeah, I, that's that's just based on what I've seen and the the work that they do. And at the end of the day, they got us in this mess in the first place. So it should I was be going to say, <laughs> but it, it did occur to reasons. me. That's it. There's other reasons too. I mean, if you look at kind of these big stakeholders, you have the private sector, the public sector, which is government, and and individuals. We can talk about people power all we want, but there's only so much we can do because the problem is so big. But and and governments certainly have washed their hands of trying for the most part. But corporations, they have a vested interest to do better because they know consumers are demanding it, but they also have access to capital and resources that those other two stakeholders could never imagine to have. These, these companies, some of them are bigger than countries. So it, it makes sense that we should be pushing them to be leading the charge and the change. I mean, at this station, we would say that we could, we could afford to have system change, but, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, that's, that's a perspective that you put forward, and it does seem like a pragmatic approach. Uh, there's other things that are interesting, the case studies that you go into, which I find really fascinating. The, uh, the report, when I heard that the next uh, COP was going to be auspiced by the Saudi Arabians, I just thought, <laughs> oh, my God, this is really just an end game, isn't it? It's, it, it pains me to say because, you know, this is my, my first paycheck was from the U.N. system. But um, it, it, it's become the foxes guarding the hen house. It doesn't make sense. And I understand they're trying to be inclusive and get everybody involved. I get that. But, I mean, optics are a huge part of this as well. And you can't have petrostates running conferences where we're talking primarily about oil and gas. Well, that that's, that is the supreme use, misuse of a system, and it is the supreme kind of greenwashing, isn't it? I mean, that's it's the exactly same right. as the World Cup uh, sure. being at, at uh, the way that was handled. That was just the last World Cup. That was that was a disgrace, actually. And it, the good part of it all is that people woke up to that, which is in, inspiring, I guess. So I don't know if the ends justify the means when it comes to human rights. But for the, the World Cup example, that is people push back against that. Governments push back against that. So that's, that's what we want to see. And hopefully we don't need to see too many more egregious examples where everybody starts to wake up. Because the sports events, I mean, I have to say that I stopped having any interest in the Olympics quite a long time ago. Uh, so it wasn't actually news to me what you say in your book about the way uh, sports are used as a sort of a greenwashing affair because what what you're pointing out is that the public are aware that something needs to be done to have uh, humans need to have a, a, a proper relational connection to the environment so that we don't destroy the planet like the public know this as a general rule that's right and we there's this concept in in sustainability which I think people will 
pretty easily understand. We call it the social right to operate. And essentially what that is is we don't, as consumers, just give money to a corporation to let them exist. We also have to give them a social reason to exist. We have to allow it. And corporations understand this. So how they greenwash through, example, through sports is they'll use, like you mentioned, the World Cup, these big marquee events, to put their name against. Or even the Australian Open is a great example. There was an amazing picture from, it would have been a few years back before COVID, where you have somebody, uh, a major tennis star, on the court, ready to take the final. And there are they're surrounded by these billboards of highly polluting industries. And you're just going, wait a minute, wait a minute. They're, so essentially, these corporations are using these marquee events to justify the things they're doing or to throw you off the scent to say, oh, look, we're good. We're good corporate citizens because we're supporting the sport that you all love. But again, just egregious examples of greenwashing. But on the positive side, we know we can work against that because up until the 90s, tobacco was a major sponsor of sporting events, not just in Australia, but around the world. And we don't see that anymore because people push back. So hopefully in the not too distant future, we start to see people push back against the likes of automobile companies and oil companies sponsoring these major events as well. That was interesting, uh, that uh, piece in your book about how the company that you were working for were approached by a uh, tobacco firm uh, to go to, to do an audit. Because in your world, there are actually whole uh, structures and formats that are used to actually audit a company's sustainability and a tobacco company came to you, your company, and uh, it was an internal discussion in your place around if you could actually even deal with a tobacco company because uh, it, it doesn't, uh, it, it can't, it can't compute, it can't be sustainable. But it was able to go to an English company, which I looked up. Uh, and is online and uh, touts itself as, you know, an international uh, company that uh, is, you know, uh, you know, re- reputable, da-da-da-da. But that company was able to basically greenwash this, com- this tobacco company quite happily. These businesses will search around until they find somebody to validate what they're doing and put a stamp on it. We know they will. Uh, and, and you're right. In that example, it was a... It was a lengthy internal discussion because our approach to any corporation was if you come to us with the best of intentions, we will help you try to improve the things that you're doing. But with that, with tobacco, uh, again, an industry that kills its end user from a human rights perspective, we just could not, at the end of the day, help them. Uh, But like you said, they found somebody who did. Yeah, who's still... uh you know, considered to be a reputable company, international. one of the big ones, yes. Um, <laughs> uh, if people want to know the name, they can look You have the book, to read the book. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> they're one of the big ones, yes. Yeah. And, and then there's the, because uh, uh, it always uh, reminds me of, you know, like if you, uh, it, it, the artists who say that if you wear a suit, you can get away with anything. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Hopefully people have seen behind that. Uh, now too, but uh, yes, usually uh, with a suit, you can you can put a stamp of approval on much. <laughs> uh, and uh, I I guess um, I mean there's so much more in the book, but uh, one of the last examples because we're running out of time is uh, the very interesting uh, observation around three uh, countries uh, and how they're represented into in the world. So Australia, Singapore and uh, the European states. 
each of these um, present themselves uh, or mainly people consider them in a favourable light. But if you actually delve down deeper, uh, these, um, they've got, uh, we've got a, um, a dark heart in, a, in when it comes to environmental uh, sustainability. In in while on the other hand, you know, so Saudi Arabia is can you know completely clearly have human rights problems as well as uh, peddlers of oil, right? So you know, uh, some states get away with greenwashing their image. That's right, and it's it's. An interesting point of the discussion, I guess, to frame it quickly, there, all countries are bad. <laughs> we can say that. So the examples that are in the book are just the ones that, uh, honestly, as an author, were easiest to write about. <clears throat> and I thought people would have the most interest in. But there's a, a great website called the Climate Action Tracker. And this group has monitored how well countries are performing against their 2015 Paris Agreement. Uh, and as of right now, there are exactly zero countries on track to meet their Paris Climate Agreement, which I think comes up in 2025, so in just two years' time. So no country is doing well. But in those examples, it's quite interesting. And since we're talking in Australia, let's, let's talk Australia. Uh, people think Australia, they think clean, green. They, they get these images of, of the harbor in Sydney, and it's gorgeous. And yes, that's very true. And you can't find a more left-leaning place in the world where people are very much behind building a green, sustainable future. So that's good. But we have to remember at the heart of Australia, sort of out of sight and out of mind for a lot of us, is is the heart of what finances this country, which is digging things out of the ground, which is yeah. highly polluting. So uh, not to discredit all the amazing work that people and the government is doing, but there, like you said, I, I think you put it brilliantly, there is a dark heart to what keeps us afloat. Yeah, it's pretty bad. I mean, I'm old enough to remember uh, as a you know, teenager hearing on the radio, ABC radio, talking about in the 70s, Australia being a great big um, hole in the ground. Uh, <laughs> and I, and I, now I think, because, you know, there was, uh, is that all Australia is, a great big hole in the ground? And I'm thinking to myself, how much has changed? Nothing has changed. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much for talking to us today, John. Uh, the book, The Great Greenwashing, How uh, Brands, Governments and Influencers Are Lying to You, is out now, right? That's exactly right. It's at uh, most bookstores and certainly online as well. Um, thank you so much for having me. It's been a great discussion. Yeah, thank you. There you go. And uh, as I said, uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast and we're going to hear the great Kevin Healy. A week's solidarity, Bricky team listener, when Reserve Losses Bank Supremo Philip lay workers low, through the goodness of his big generous heart, again laid workers low, which he pointed out was for their own good, and his generosity was supported by all the great economists who comprehend and practitioners who understand the greatest little economic order of them all, the delicate flower that is the economy, who agreed laying workers low was for their own good. As yet another rate rise hit their pay packets and repayments, Philip proffered his sage advice on how they could survive all this. Cut your spending, well, other than on those repayments, stop spending money and work harder. Uh, So if we work harder, our caring employer will pay us more, Philip? 
Uh, certainly not, and I, I certainly hope not. That would clearly be inflationary, given the price of labor is the real problem here. The, the real problem poor caring employers have to deal with. No, just work harder. Uh, but you also say more workers must be out of work. Unemployment must rise also for their own good. So you're asking people not to work. True, true. Those in work must work harder. and We must have people, more people out of work. And how fortunate are they? Because when I say cut their spending, they have nothing to worry about. What, because they've got nothing to spend? Exactly. So, Philip, the interests of caring employers, the caring business class and their profits, is more important than people starving and unable to pay their bills? That makes me seem uncaring, and yet I urge people to starve and cut their spending and not survive on New Start and work harder because I am a very caring person. I care about the economy, for instance. Beautifully spoken, Philip. Thank you. Pleasure. And here, the benefits of a socialist government, the authority of a socialist government, came to the rescue. Concerns about more and more mortgagees unable to meet their ever-increasing repayments assuaged by big economic guru Jim Chalmers Capital. I urge the banks to be more understanding and compassionate, he pleaded, showing he's got the situation under control. Problem solved. Because who would ever suggest the great banks are anything but understanding and compassionate anyway, or, or they'd ignore Jim's plea? In the, I seem to have had a memory lapse department, workers did have one um, champion this week who attacked the socialists by declaring the 5.75% crippling wage increase for the lowest of low paid meant real wages were falling further behind the cost of living. Yes, that champion of working people, caring business class, shadow minister for a few things, Michaela Kosh, the workers, who also said, and here's where the, I seem to have had a memory lapse comes into it, said the caring business class, hayseed and sheepshit coalition over the past 10 years, had always fought for maintaining workers' living standards. It's amazing how some things just seem to escape the memories, to slip the mind. In fact, I could have sworn, but no, 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 must have been wrong. After all, Michaela had a couple of stints as Minister for Caring Business Class Relations and did so much for workers' living standards, for workers generally and for evil unions, even though she knows how evil, evil they are. Although the confusion we amateurs in this business of business suffer was regenerated when another great practitioner whose views we admire, Jerry Harvey for me and lots more than Harvey for me, said the wage increase for the lowest of Michaela saw as grossly inadequate, showing, by the way, Michaela agrees with evil union boss Josh Cullinan, who also said it was inadequate, or Josh agrees with Michaela. I'm sure he is a long-time admirer of her. But Jerry said it would push up prices, make life difficult for businesses like Jerry's ubiquitous advertiser, and stimulate inflation, forcing people like Jerry to increase their prices, something which would break poor Jerry's heart. Poor Jerry. Showing how selfish and anti-true blue Aussie those lowest of low paid are. And spare a thought for poor BHP, the big true blue Aussie, bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, complaining that being forced to pay equal pay for the same work would increase its wages bill by 1.3 billion.
leaving, as we said a couple of weeks ago, simple minds to suggest the only logical conclusion is it's ripping off its own labour hire subsidiary workers by $1.3 billion. Well, obviously, there must be a much more complicated explanation, like it's ripping off its labour force workers by $1.3 billion. And it gets worse for Bloody Huge because it's also been sprung underpaying workers $430 million, inadvertently, of course. All of that over and above or below, depending how we look at it, the normal exploitation inherent in the employer-employee relationship. So as Bloody Huge Profits complained, not only would it have to pay workers equal pay for equal work, it would have to find millions to reimburse those workers. The socialists are screwing us. The pendulum has swung far too far toward the evil trade union movement. And the great resource giants urge the government to shelve the same same job, same pay legislation because it would remove the flexibility they so cherish and destroy productivity. Goodness, doesn't paying workers have serious social implications? Obviously, the already inadequate productivity, because on top of all that, the great practitioners have pointed out their eternal problem. Low productivity from their lazy, avaricious workers is killing this country. As Philip says, workers must pull their fingers out and work harder. Much, much harder. And although they've told us for years they can't solve slow wages growth until workers do pull their fingers out, they point out that right now, fighting inflation must come first. And much as they would just love to pay workers more for pulling their fingers out, as Jerry and Bloody Huge Profits and Philip and all the wise practitioners know, that would just increase inflation and hurt those workers more. Again, displaying their real concern, the workers whom they so care about. Reflecting on Reconciliation Week, we mentioned caring business class party deputy supremo Susan Lees and Dregs celebrated by announcing she would vote no with a heavy heart. Susan, there's a simple way to avoid a heavy heart. We tried to help her. Anyway, reflecting on... We must thank Constable Duffer, Susan and the team for showing us why we need a Reconciliation Week, a wonderful contribution. Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin's dedicated campaign to educate Victorians to the evil of the pejorative Dan and the Socialists, very, very slow learners, these Victorians, reached Screaming Point Wednesday with, You're right to know! Big slash through K-N-O-W and huge no N-O. The government daring withdraw advertising in the whopping sin. After all, it does to inform people in a balanced and objective way. Uh, well, it is um, withdrawing advertising in all print media, but Lord Rupert's team seem more concerned about one particular print medium. Then next morning, why do we have to suffer screaming at us, P1? No, no, not the whopping sin suffering without government advertising, but this time, Dan was the reason a serial killer's victim's family and friends were suffering. Is there no flaw to the depth of his evil? Declared over at least 20 years by the whopping sin as the most evil woman in the true blue Aussie, Kathleen Folbig was pardoned after a mere 20 years locked up. The whopping sin now, without blushing, declaring her a wonderful person who didn't deserve all that. 
Ditto last week after telling us for years war criminal, murderer, train killer Ben Roberts smite them was arguably the greatest troubler was he who ever lived no, no, not arguably, ever, for going off and slaughtering threats to true blue Aussie like evil Afghans and evil Iraqis undertaking dangerous activities like shopping or playing with their kids. Then again, without blushing, overnight, he was the new villain, replacing Kathleen as true blue Aussie's most evil person. Still, we suppose, with the whopping sin painting her for at least 20 years as evil, Kathleen was fortunate in some ways compared to 12 people in Connecticut, exonerated and declared not guilty after all, after being convicted of witchcraft. Just a pity their pardon came a, a touch late, as they were executed 400 years ago. We know the legal system can be slow, but, the, but that's ridiculous. Despite the above, Lord Rupert does know evil when he sees it, like evil China, along with our politicians who know because our very, very, very close friend, as long as we do what it tells us, the US of the UN of the US of the world told us. But cynical as we might be, the proof was in the interview this week with a commentator from Beijing asked why evil China was so nasty to the US of replying, how's this for threatening language, listener? Just who has bases and merchants of death merchandise in whose backyard? When we know the US of has no choice but to have bases just everywhere and has to challenge evil China in waters and airways surrounding evil China because evil China has cunningly located aggressive threatening bases in, wait for it, in China. That would make it dumb to challenge evil aggressive China from way over in the US of, train killer expert Chuck Slaughter explained. Meanwhile, the US of Secretary of US of World State, Blinken We Shoot, went to explain to its very, very close friends in the Middle East, like those bastions of liberty, freedom and democracy, Saudi and Zion, that although it says it is the Pacific and China power, it is also the Middle East power and also the European power. And, well, the power, wherever it has train killer bases and arsenals of merchants of death merchandise, and, to be fair, it's hard to think of where it hasn't. Some cynics say, how would the US of react if China set up bases in Cuba and Canada and sent military ships and aircraft to the waters of California or New York? as if the US of would treat it as aggression, whereas we know they would be welcomed with open arms. Arms like bombs and aircraft carriers and killer jets and killer drones and trillions of dollars of merchants of death merchandise. And finally, to those who carry on about True Blue Aussie being a pawn and acolyte of the US of rubbish, why True Blue Aussie has independently decided to send a few old used train killer planes to good, good Ukraine, and the US of has told us we can as long as we meet certain conditions it has imposed on us. That'll put those carrying on about obedient, groveling, porn acolyte in their place. Good morning. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical.
We need your financial support to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station radical and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2023. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we're up to the last part of the program this morning and uh, today uh, we're going to use it to focus on the incredibly harsh uh, new uh, anti-protest laws that have been enacted in South Australia. Uh, they're going to, the fines are up to $50,000 or three months in jail and it all revolves around... Uh, uh, basically uh, getting in the way of uh, normal uh, process. Uh, as one uh, journalist put it, uh, uh, the ambulance excuse. But anyway, I got to speak to Dale uh, Beasley from uh, SA Unions about their response to the new laws. Now, it's pretty amazing the uh uh, Melanarchist governments just passed this uh, extraordinary anti-protest bill in South Australia, and it's it's more draconian than in any of the other states. Can you give my listeners some reflections from the uh, SA Union's point of view on this? Yeah, I, I absolutely can. It's been a very extraordinary and disappointing couple of weeks um, in South Australia for unions as well as you know other civil society and human rights groups that have been um, quite outraged by the passage of these laws um, you know the concerns that unions have had from the moment the government put these laws into Parliament was yes the massive increase in the penalties um, but also the increase in the scope of the offense um, not to mention the fact that um, it was all decided within the walls of Parliament without any consultation with any community stakeholders or any legal experts outside of the government. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It was so fast. Uh, They came up with their bill overnight and then, like, within 22 minutes or something, it was passed. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 22 minutes is all it took, apparently. Um, You know, if you go back three weeks in time, right, we had a big... Um, oil and gas explorers conference here in Adelaide and there was a string of environmental protests as you'd probably expect um, alongside that conference being held calling for urgent climate action. Um, the uh, the catalyst I suppose for these laws was on the morning of the 24th of May um, there was a, uh, a protester with Extinction Rebellion um, who suspended themselves from a, a road bridge in the middle of the city and um, during morning peak hour and that you know created uh, some, um, you know, some traffic chaos. Uh, you know, police shut down intersections and the fireys were called in to help retrieve the protester. Now, it was the opposition, um, the Liberal opposition, that actually came up with the idea for these laws. There were, you know, talkback radio callers who were um, a bit upset about the traffic inconvenience. Um, the opposition jumped on that and drafted some legislation. It was in the government that leapt in um, and took the opposition's legislation and introduced it themselves. And, uh, yeah, it flew through the House, uh, the lower house, with bipartisan support in 22 minutes. 
It's it's pretty extraordinary. Uh, and as you point out, uh, that particular conference, which was paid for by overseas fossil fuel companies, it might be added, it was would be expected that there would be uh, demonstrations around what many people would be would see as being foolhardy environmental vandalism, really. Well, indeed. I mean, we've seen uh, protests um, from the you know, environmental activists, but also, you know, broad broad cross section of society, including unionists, calling for um, action on 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 climate change and um, for for a just transition for workers. So, you know, it would be expected that a conference like this would attract um, that sort of attention. Uh, the thing with the um, you know the, the the traffic disruption that happened on that particular morning was yes, it was it was initially caused because there was um, a protester who um, suspended themselves from a bridge. But, you know, it was also the actions of um, the the emergency services that created a lot of this, the disruption as well. There's been some, you know, chatter here in South Australia about whether, you know, the police needed to shut down practically the entire CBD to deal with that one <laughs> um, one protester. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there's a bit to this, but the thing that has really shocked people, I think, is the speed with which the government moved on this. Um, and I think it's it's really critical that we don't accept that this is how laws can be made that control what people can do, the public can do in public places, um, especially when people now face, you know, the, the harshest um, financial penalties, but also potentially jail time. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, on your Facebook, you say uh, quite uh, clearly that um, it uh, South Australian union members have fought for over a century to improve our living standards and rights at work. It took just 20 minutes for the government to pass a bill in the House of Assembly attacking our rights to take the industrial action that made that possible. This is very mm. key, isn't it, to union and worker rights? Yeah, so the government have been saying all along that they took the action that they did because they wanted to target what they called an increasing incident of, of protests which caused unreasonable disruption and put public safety at risk. But you know, the action that they took and the laws that they put through were not targeted at all. They were broad. Um, they expanded the offence of causing an, an obstruction in a public place. Um, and that expansion uh, ended up touching a whole range of activities and organisations, um, including unions and, and the way that we go about um, organising public demonstrations and industrial action. And, and that's why you saw such a mobilisation of unions and civil rights groups and human rights organisations and even the legal profession here in Adelaide. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting that the government also faced down crossbenchers, moved to hold inquiries into the bill to review mm. it in a year or add a defence of reasonableness. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Look, so, uh, another part of the um, real uh, disappointment that so many people are feeling comes from the fact that um, even after so much expert opinion um, and community sentiment around these laws came out calling for them to be you know, slowed down, properly considered, properly consulted. Um, the government took the very next opportunity that they had to put them through the Legislative Council. Um, and even though the crossbench suggested quite a number of what I would call you know, quite reasonable amendments to deal with the scope of the offence and, um, and 
and you know provide provide more of an opportunity for the un- potential unintended intended consequences to be you know, properly thought through. The government only agreed to I think it was two or maybe three of them all up. Yeah, um, can you tell me a little bit more about how the um, obstruction of public places amendment mm. bill has altered? You know, uh, mm. you you talked about it being quite broad. Yeah. Yeah, I can. So previously there was a $750 fine um, that could be handed out if you willfully obstructed a public place. Um, the new laws that the government introduced brought in penalties of up to $50,000 in fines um, or three months jail time. Um, and, and the test was changed so that um, instead of if you had done uh, obstructed a public place willfully, um, the test was whether you uh, had intentionally or recklessly um, obstructed the public place. So, the increase of uh, sorry, the, the introduction of recklessly concerned a lot of people because you know, essentially you could be found guilty if it wasn't even your intention to cause the obstruction. Um, now, on top of all of that, uh, you can now potentially be liable for the costs of the response of emergency services. Um, yeah. to a protest that you're organising as well. Um, the bill also uh, expanded the offence from dealing with um, obstructions that are that are caused directly or direct obstructions and, in, and introduced indirect obstructions. So um, that, that basically says that people can be held liable for the actions of third parties that create an obstruction at an event or a protest that you organise, um, whether or not you even knew an obstruction had been created by, by that third party. If you're the organiser, you could potentially be held, um, uh, be held to account. Oh, this is just an open-ended uh, outrage, really. Uh, it also uh, gives the uh, South Australian police uh, a lot of discretion, doesn't it? Yeah, it absolutely does. And over here in South Australia over the last couple of days, there's been a lot a lot more media attention on that. Um, our police commissioner has, you know, come out and said that it is it's definitely their intention to um to start applying uh those those new powers that they have, um when if and when they need to. Um and on, on radio yesterday he indicated our police police commissioner indicated that, you know, the sorts of costs people could be up uh, up for could go into the tens of thousands of dollars. Um, now, I, like I can give you an example of just how problematic um, this this new section of the, the Act is. Um, we held a protest, um, unions and civil society groups, uh, last week. About 2,000 people rocked up to Festival Plaza, um, which I guess is a bit like Fed Square in, in Victoria. Um, it's right outside of Parliament, and we were protesting on the morning that this bill went back um, to the to the upper house. So it was, you know, a, a group of about two thousand two thousand people. Um, you know, everyone was interacting pretty respectfully. People were in decent spirits. Um, we were well away from any public thoroughfares or roads, uh, and you know, we heard some speeches and some 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 music and some dancing. The thing we didn't have any control over, though, obviously, is um, how the police responded to that. So um, we had no control over uh, who or what numbers um, get sent to monitor the crowd. Everyone was acting pretty respectfully with the police, but the police did rock up 
um, with about four police horses and there were 30, about 30 officers who were there. Usually we'd expect, you know, maybe three or four police to rock up to a demonstration of that size. Um, but, you know, if you if we're now potentially looking at situations where um, two, two dozen or more officers arrive at a demonstration um, and if... if for whatever reason, a, um, a, a obstruction is caused by um, someone, even if that obstruction is indirect. Um, you know, we could potentially be looking at having to pay the cost for the deployment of all of those officers and any other um, emergency services that uh, get get deployed just in preparation or you know expectation that there might be something that goes wrong. So that's a real that's a real problem. And like, of course. Um, we expect that that is to provide a, 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 a dampening down or a, a chilling effect on people taking process action um, altogether, right? If, if, if there is so much risk for people who attend or organise um, protests, it's, it, it naturally slows that people will start to rethink it. And for unions um, who organise um, demonstrations and protests and industrial action, of course, we would have to start reassessing the risk of us potentially falling afoul of these new offences through no fault of our own. The um, Premier uh, Melanarchus is an interesting uh, subject in relation to this. He comes from uh, the union movement in the sense that he was the uh, secretary of the uh, state branch of the SDA. Now, of course, the SDA is a right-wing union, and that's its tag. Um, is there anything, any um, uh, feelings within the union movements about this? That I mean, this is a Labor government, and this man has come from the union movement. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I can say that the... United South Australian Union movement um, has and has expressed uh, concerns to the government about this in, in no uncertain terms, and like the the Premier as well as the Attorney General, who's the other um, main main uh, spokesperson on on these laws, um, both have you know union or union adjacent backgrounds, and they've been saying all along that it's not their intention to have created a situation that would, um, you know, expand the scope of this offence or, um, you know, particularly impinge on the rights of unions to take industrial action. But all of the expert legal opinion, the, the position of the South Australian Law Society, South, the South Australian Bar Association and um, criminal law advice that um, unions have received indicates that, you know, the bill that they put in uh, would have that effect. So the real disappointing thing is that um, the, the government's rhetoric around what they wanted to do with this bill and, and what they didn't want to do with this bill didn't match the law um, that's been created. Melanarchus went on to the um, uh, radio, radio talking about extremists and uh, who protested with impunity um, by crowdsourcing funds to pay their fines. I mean, he's doing the work of uh, the Liberal Party and the uh, foreign corporations, it would appear. Mm. Look, I, I, I take the government at their word um, about what they were intending to do with this bill, right? Um, the disappointing thing is that, that 
you know, I, I think the expansion in the scope of the offence and all the other issues that I've outlined is what happens when laws are rushed through like this, right? You don't have an opportunity to properly craft laws to do the thing that you want them to do in 22 minutes on the floor of parliament, on, on the floor of the um, of the lower house. So the the consistent call that unions and all the other allied groups um, opposed to this legislation were were put into the government was to slow it down, was to actually engage in thoughtful consultation on the bill um, and make sure that their, you know, the rhetoric um, matched the substance. And it's really, really disappointing to have seen these laws fly through the upper house and now become law without the government having actually done that. It was interesting that the uh, government, and they're not the only government that's done this, but they generally mm. send out a message to the public saying that we need to do this because uh, these obstructions interfere with emergency services. Um, yeah. uh, and um, it was significant that the South Australian Ambulance Employees Union actually put forward that they were actually alarmed by the breadth of these laws, considering mm -hmm. that uh, in the lead up to last year's state election, Labor joined Greens, South Australia Best and others in protesting about ambulance ramping, mm. which mm. is a, a case in point, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think that's really critical. One of the things that the government have been saying um, as uh, is being a big driver of behind why they needed to act was keeping the community safe. And one of the things they said was um, created with this protest uh, at the end of May was a situation where, um, you know, our largest hospital was uh, gridlocked um, because it was, you know, right right adjacent to where this protest took place. Um, and, they, you know, the suggestion was that um, ambulances and um, health professionals and health workers weren't able to get to the hospital. Now, the Ambulance Employees Association came out um, pretty directly saying that there, there was not at that point in time, nor has there ever been a time um, where a protest by Extinction Rebellion um, has caused an ambulance to not be able to... Um, uh, assist the community um, and and respond to an emergency situation. So that that was quite significant. Um, but I think this is this is um, this is this is the situation the government has right now. Right, they have created um, a situation where their um, their their supporter base is really disillusioned with them over the way that they've managed. Um, the situation, why they responded the way they did, and the process that um, that they took. Well, they've trashed um, democratic rights quite clearly, but um, it was quite interesting that it was reported that uh, the uh, energy minister um, was uh, quoted at the conference as saying, we are thankful you are here, that is the um, fossil fuel industry. We are happy to be a recipient of APPEA's largess in the form of coming here more often, South Australian government is at your disposal. We are here to help mm. and we are here to offer you a pathway to the future. So uh, the economics of fossil fuel development in South Australia as being the linchpin of the economy seems to be their focus. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it, it, it doesn't, it's not a good look, right, to have had those comments um, made uh, just days before these laws were, were put in. So um, 
you know, it's, it's probably worth noting that that conference did have a theme of accelerating towards decarbonisation, right? So some of the government's um, language and rhetoric leading up to and um, yeah, know, but but it was the conference was yeah, was but it was um, that way. Yeah, but it was finance. I mean, they might have talked about decarbonisation, but it was actually financed by uh, Exxon Mobil, Mogul oh, absolutely. and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Woodside. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. you know, words are cheap. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But look, there is to have these laws come hot off the back of those comments, I think presents a really big problem for the government. Can you give me any idea about what the pushback is now from uh, SA unions and uh, civil society in uh, South Australia over now that the laws have passed? Yeah. Yep. Well, we, uh, well, SA unions and um, the broader, you know, Alliance of Civil Society um, organisations uh, said our main concern was the um, expansion of the offence caused by these new laws, right? So we have had the laws that went through the upper house. Um, we've we've had them now for about a week. Uh, so we are still grappling with trying to understand the, the scope um, that, that we're now operating under. So the government's um, change to uh, include the term reckless um, in the offence was removed, um, which is... is is positive, and we're thankful that the government agreed to the crossbenchers amendment on that front. Um, however, the inclusion of indirect obstruction um, is a really problematic area, and we've got to properly assess what that means for us when we take um, industrial action and um, other protests and demonstrations. Uh, I do know um, that some in the, the human rights space have indicated a potential challenge on the grounds of um, uh, a high court challenge on human rights basis, but um, I think we're still we're still you know having seven days under our belt, still just grappling with trying to work out um, how we need to mitigate these new risks. Thank you very much for talking to me today, Dale. That's all right. I'm very happy to. Thank you. And that was uh, Dale Beasley from SA Unions talking about the anti-protest laws that have just been passed in South Australia. Uh, very interesting, I reckon, anyway. Uh, we had uh, this morning, This Is The Week That Was, uh, and we also spoke to John Patpon about his book, Gr The Great Greenwashing, How Brands, Governments and Influences Are Lying to You. It's out now in good bookshops. And then we, and right at the beginning of the program, we interrogated what's uh, the meaning of Mabo Day and uh, had a chat with Dr. Uh, Joe Toscano, uh, who, who every year has been having a small gathering, which may grow uh, at uh, Federation Square to mark Mabo Day, one of the most important days in the Australian history uh, annals, I'd have to say. Uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and I thought I would go out with a very uh, a blast from the past. It's Wendy Saddington, We Need a Song. Don't forget to be aware and alert next week for Radiothon. We want you to ring in to Solidarity Breakfast. Have a song A 
a song to sing. Jesus sang a song, cause he had a song. I had a song, song to sing, to sing. Enjoy listening to that podcast? 3CR is a community radio station, and you, the listener, are a part of that community. Right now, it's our radiothon. We need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donations really matter.